Welcome to Geographical Thinking. We share stories of people using GIS to illuminate their world and see what others can't. I'm your host, Guan Yu. Ducks Unlimited Canada is one of the oldest environmental groups in Canada. It was founded in 1938. Its goal is to conserve wetlands and other natural spaces for waterfowl, wildlife, and people. They're an early adopter and very keen user of GIS technology. The person currently leading that passion is Andrew Pratt. Andrew is manager of information technology and leads the infrastructure, national GIS, and conservation technology teams at Ducks Unlimited. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks. It's nice to be here. So, Andrew, how long have you been with Ducks Unlimited? Uh, lifetime, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is actually quite a, a long story. But、um, I started with Ducks Unlimited as a summer student when I was in, was in university in 1994, and really just I just never left. So I've had several different careers over that、uh, that time span, and as you say, now sort of lead the the IT side of the organization, including GIS. So lots of different hats, but、uh, it's been a it's been a fun wild ride. Pardon the pun.、So、when- Did you get into GIS at Dax Unlimited?、Uh, interestingly, probably so. In about '97 or so, I transferred from one of our satellite offices to our national office. And in those days, we were doing a lot of research、um, on nesting waterfowl across the prairies and in southern Ontario. And we were digitizing aerial photography into then spans, and then from spans into our An early version of ArcGIS,、uh, Arc 3.1.、Um, so I got involved with it sort of really from the onset,、um, and then after those that sort of that project ended, I switched full time into sort of our national GIS team and got involved with ArcGIS. And actually, it was ArcGIS or ArcGIS. It was sort of we were one of the very first shops to、uh, to put mobile apps on on the website. So,、mm-hmm. so, so a long、uh, time. <laughs> <laughs> so、um, at the very beginning,、um, Daxon Limited uses GIS to digitize aerial images to translate that information and to put wetland information on、um, on, on wet-based maps. And and there are so many conservation projects going on at Daxon Limited. I mean, I, I read on your website there are twelve thousands of them, and they are like ranging from sizes very small backyard sizes to a very big like large scale、uh, conservation projects, and they're all over the country. So, it, does GIS play a role in managing、um, these projects? Yes, and I'd say it's more than just managed because、um, I mean there's lots of different aspects that GIS, GIS permeates our entire organization. We are a science-based company first and foremost, and given that we work a lot on the land, there's an obvious strong tie to the spatial component. And so, the GIS software has been embedded in the company for decades.、Um, So, sort of in the modern world,、uh, we we utilize the Esri toolsets on project inception. So,、um, right from whether it's a landowner that's walking in off the street and saying, "Hey, I've got a parcel of land that I'd be interested in working with you,"、um, then the conservation staff will pull up the sort of the available imagery, whether that's through the Esri service or whether it's、um, one of the image services that we host internally from sort of Mosaics off image server. And they'll take a look、uh, together over the property, and then assuming that that project goes forward, 
then they're digitizing the uh, proposed plan for the, the, and that's all in ARC, and then it moves up into the corporate database. And um, depending on the scale too, if it's a really large project, like multi-million dollar kind of things, um, then it goes sort of up the chain for approvals. And so our district and regional and even our CEO often is on our sort of our project map bureau, which is an Esri-based web app um, where they're looking at these proposed projects and saying, yes or no, this makes sense to, to proceed or not. So from staff right in the ground all the way up to our CEO, everyone's, everyone's using the tools. That sounds amazing. And it's interesting you said that in very early on in that engagement process with your stakeholders, like that's one of the first things that the staff will show them. And from there on, they are like, you know, delineating the, the area. Um, how do you find GIS as a tool to engage people like in the field, engage stakeholders that you want to influence? Well, it's a common language, right? I think which is one of... Um like the ESRI conferences, I think that was one of the taglines at one point that it was, it's a common framework. And that's certainly true of our organization where we are a science company, we're a fundraising company. So we've got lots of stakeholders that donate money to us. Um, and it's, it's GIS and the cartographic products that we can derive from it, whether that's print, whether it's media, whether it's video, whether it's um, interactive websites, et cetera they're all key in driving home the message and connecting sort of people to our mission so that they understand what and where mm -hmm. it is that we're doing some of some of the, the work that we do so it's. Mm -hmm. and there are new projects that the organization's looking at every year um how, how do you and i assume you have a lot of factor to take into consideration when you're evaluating how do you invest your money where to uh, conserve how, how does GIS play a role in that, in helping the organization making decisions of where uh, should we protect and where is give me the best return of investment? Not necessarily in terms of money, but also in terms of the eco uh, ecological value. Right. So as you say, Canada is an awfully big place. And so Ducks Unlimited Canada is sort of a sister organization to DU Inc. And then there's also one in Mexico, DU de Mexico. And so because the birds are migrating up and down, I mean, they, they glo they're global. And so we have to think about a lot of things and even not just outside Canada, but sort of a continental view of, of conservation. So in doing that, there's a lot of models that have been built using various inputs. Um, we've done an awful lot of research across the prairies and across different parts of Canada on sort of the preferred habitat types of various different species. And so that'll be, that's one of the inputs into the model. You can look at sort of some of the newer uh, iterations that we've done and that include the cost of the land. Um, so some ag census data, some, some cost, obviously if you're trying to do a, a thousand acre project in Southern Manitoba, the costs of that are gonna be vastly different if you're trying to do that in say Southern Ontario or on the BC um, interior, those costs are gonna be wildly different. And so it's, it's one of the factors that goes into building the models that we have that sort of build this surface as to here's the optimal places to do work to have the biggest impact or the biggest bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your counterparts in the U.S. and Mexico. Do they live in the same? Do all three organizations live in the same GIS environment? How do you go about collaborating in separate organizations and making sure that information is shared and uh, communicated and everyone's collaborating on the same common picture. Right, so we, we're independent companies and so we have our own Esri tenant and as do they, 
Um, but obviously we are continually sharing data, whether it's through sort of REST APIs or data sets or whether it's shapefiles or geodatabases that we're sharing back and forth. But there's an awful lot of collaboration that, that happens between all of the various organizations and not just them. We, we partner with lots of different um, NGOs across the country, NCC and, and other ones. And so we're sharing data with them as well. Mm-hmm. For all of the GIS use cases at uh, DAX Unlimited, which are the ones? So if uh, you're talking to a large environmental uh, organizations and if they're somewhat new to GIS, which like which aspect would you say they will benefit most from learning from DAX Unlimited? So I might have a slightly different answer than some given A, our history and B, my role where I lead IT and GIS. Um, I know too many horror stories where the IT department and the GIS department were not at least functionally joined at the hip. They were one functional unit. They were two separate entities. And mm-hmm. one, especially as we've seen the evolution of, of sort of modern GIS systems to really become IT systems. And especially as you're moving to cloud and mobile and, and web, et cetera. If you're not locking step with your IT department, it's especially on the security side and deployment projects just can't happen or worse do happen and then stop because of reasons at the very end. Um, so I guess if I was to say to any group that's getting started, make sure that your GIS staff and your IT staff are talking and collaborating the whole way because there's very little difference now between an enterprise GIS system and an enterprise IT system. They're essentially the same thing. So, Yeah, we've seen many siloed organizations between IT and GIS in the past and now more more than ever, we're seeing the uh, the merging of these two groups because they they as you said, as uh, modern GIS comes, there aren't many differences between running like thinking about GIS system as part of the IT system of large organization. Dan, we we certainly had that history. I mean, we were lucky in that our GIS and IT systems we all sit at sort of across from each other and, and we all sort of work hand in step, but. It's been interesting over the journey watching GIS evolve from being running on sort of powerful desktops to now moving into, okay, the focus was on the desktop, then it became the focus on the database, then it moved into the cloud, and now it's moving into, so it just keeps evolving, so. Um, Like any other NGOs, DAX Unlimited need to raise funds. Is GIS used in the process of raising funds and I guess more effectively targeting the population that you want to raise fund from? Yeah, so DU runs, I mean, uh, pre-COVID, anyway, we used to run over 350 banquets and dinners across the country. Um, And so as part of that, there's there's multiple parts where GIS plays a role. And part of it is is selecting where do we, if we want to add another event or another banquet, another golf tournament, et cetera. Um, we know based on your postal code where our supporters live. And so you can spatially plot that and look for hotspots and say, huh, there is a cluster of supporters that live in Windsor, Ontario, and we don't have a, an event within 50 miles of them. Maybe that would be a consideration of, of a place to do that. And so we've certainly run those sorts of analysis. Um, also at the banquets and dinners themselves, GIS and maps are a really good way to, to sort of illustrate the story that we do. And so there's lots of examples of things that we do, both in sort of PowerPoint slides that move across um, the people that are there to show local projects, or we've done radius maps to say within say 20 miles of where you are, here's all the DU projects and how many acres that we protected and how many millions of dollars we spent, et cetera. Um, it's, 
it's that common fabric and helping to engage and connect to people by showing them here's what's going on in, in sort of your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So that connection of, you know, um, the investment or the projects of the, of the organization versus the area that you're living in that ties people into the projects. Exactly. Um, I I read from your website that there are six approaches that Ducks Unlimited has, and one of them is uh, policy influencing. So tell us a a bit about this, like who who are, from a policymaker perspective, who are the recipients of your analysis and your data, and, and how do you convey that to them? And does GIS play a role? How does GIS play a role, if it does, in influencing policy changes? It, yes, absolutely, it does. It's it's been as we said, like the as we tool sets has evolved over the years, and have have has our programs. So, in the early days, back in the year of the, sort of the 1938s and sort of the the early days of DU, we were building large scale wetland complexes, um, and then as our research sort of did more background work on that to say, is is this making a difference? Is this the most optimal kind of program to do? The science came back and said, well, really, no. Uh, instead of building lakes, you should be building lots of small little ponds and, and sort of uh, habitat in and around it to, to have the best water quality and the best nesting success, et cetera. And so as a result, our program keeps changing and evolving. And one of the things that we've came, come to realize in the last little bit, and, and sort of this is a common trend across everyone that's trying to do influence, positive influence on the landscapes is, you can't, there isn't just, there isn't enough money to go out and buy and do sort of real direct program. A lot of it's now sort of moving into this indirect program where you're trying to influence landowner behavior in a more subtle way, which really gets into a, from a GIS perspective, because that spatial context is now no longer as discrete, right? It's no longer, it's this parcel of land. It's Southern Ontario, Southern Manitoba, we have done X. And when we start to then question, well, what difference have you made? It's more difficult. It's more of a challenge if you don't know exactly where the various pieces of um, program has, has happened. So that's that's an interesting uh, project or problem to, to solve. But in setting up the behavior changes, a lot of that policy work is done with sort of various levels of government from municipal all the way up to provincial and federal. And so that's, again, where a lot of our sort of cartographic maps and products and things that we put in hands of politicians to say, hey, this is what's going on in your backyard. This is what's going on in, in your area. These are the reasons you need to be doing certain things, right? So um, we certainly had, I mean, the one of our previous previous prime ministers of Canada was given a map and he was over, he, he stopped listening to everyone that was talking, was glued to this this map of his particular riding. This is one of what was going on. So maps in general are a very powerful communication tool. Yeah, that, that's wonderful to hear. How about um, uniting other organizations who are doing similar things in the in area? Because the way um, that we're thinking about now GIS system, it's it's no longer that map that get produced at the end. It is this digital live platform that can consume lots of the data. So, um, has GIS been used in a way that it absorbed not only data and results from ducks, but also other environmental organizations, maybe all levels of government to put, um, to put more data and more holistic view on the same page for people to consume and for those um, decision makers to, to 
uh, to get their heads wrapped around the current issues? Absolutely. Um, we have been sort of involved with the community maps program, for example, adding data from sort of our wetland layers. And we, we are one of the stewards at the moment of the Canadian Wetland Inventory Program, which has been going on for the last 15 plus years. Um, there's, I think, over 130, 140 project uh, partners that are involved in that, from First Nations to governments to municipals to all kinds of people that have been involved in that program. Um, contributing data into a common sort of national database and sort of we we currently host that but um, it's it's one example that um, lots and lots of partners are contributing data towards this sort of this national uh, view of, of where wetlands are and, and that's just one example but there's there's certainly a number out there. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the new projects that uh, uh, GIS projects that are happening at Ducks and the ones that you're most excited about? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. So we are, we've been involved for quite a while now in pushing the mobile sort of, so we have projects, like as we say, we've got 12,000 habitat projects that are scattered across the country and our habitat staff are often visiting and doing sort of inspections. And so we moved into Esri's collector tool quite a while ago um, and enabling them to use their mobile phones and iPads to do data collection in sort of near real time. And that was a, that was a real game changer um, for a couple of different reasons. One, we're collecting data that can be sort of displayed back on dashboards to their supervisors really quickly. Um, but it also managed we to collect sort of more accurate spatial locations of, of certain assets that we have, sort of dikes and ditches and water control structures, et cetera, that we had a pretty good idea where they were, but now we know exactly where they are. Um, but one of the interesting things that came out of that, though, was that a lot of our projects are pretty remote. And while you can look at it on a map to say, okay, this I can see the wetland and I can see the uplands and whatnot, the question that comes out of it, if you're not intimately familiar with that project, is how do I get there? Because quite often there's certain trails that you need to take. And of course, given that we're working on the rural landscapes, there's certain reasons that you can't go here or you shouldn't park there or you do this or watch out for the met, the really angry dog that lives in this farm, et cetera. So um, we started to collect a lot of that information as well about the particular places that we were working. And so that was really kind of cool and sort of brought some value add that we didn't really factor in. But at the end of it, especially as you have turnover, staff start to, start to retire and the new, the new guy gets hired. Now he's got this sort of data set to go, oh, that's the trail that you go in. And yeah, you should take a quad, not a truck and for that sort of stuff. So that's been really interesting to see that evolve. And I would say one of the things that's probably the most exciting for me anyway, um, we're starting to look into IoT devices to capture sort of real time or near real time on sort of water chemistry, water flow, water levels on some of our projects that we don't necessarily have to be there every week to check on something. We can see a sort of a dashboard that's doing some reporting. So that stuff like that's kind of cool. And uh, there's certainly a lot of potential to see that sort of really evolve and grow and, and integrate the data that we're getting from those sensors into our project sort of dashboards and things. And now we're in a slightly different world. So the pandemic has been going on for a while. Um, and, and engaging the customer, engaging the stakeholder is the topic that every company, you know, keeps talking about. What are, are, are there ways that uh, Ducks is thinking about using GIS to engage the volunteer base that it has? Absolutely. We are launching, or, or kind of have launched, um, an 
citizen science component. So interestingly, when DU's history back in sort of the early, early days, um, there was this concept called the Marsh Keeper, and they were basically just volunteers that were keeping an eye on some of the projects, and they were just volunteers and sending sort of note pages back and scribble drawings, and I saw this bird, and, and these are the general conditions, et cetera. Um, and then that information would sort of make its way back to head office, and then someone would sort of do put it in a filing cabinet. So we kind of brought that concept back with citizen science as, as a way to engage with people who are interested in some of our projects. And a lot of them are urban. A lot of them are sort of used in daily use by people who have no idea that DU has been involved in helping to restore or build or maintain. Um, so we sort of partnered with iNaturalist, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's a very easy to use, mobile-friendly um, way for people to sort of take pictures of plants and amphibians and frogs and birds, and it will tell you as best it can what species that is, and it all gets tagged and then sort of flows into project and different dashboards. So that project is, is really kind of slick because it's a really easy way for people to get engaged and understand, hey, I just saw this this little brown bird, and you can actually say, oh, that's a, this kind of bird. Um, and so that's, that's been really interesting. We've now got a little over 100 projects that are in, in the iNaturalist database. And out of that, there's over 3,000 different species that are using it, and which was sort of interesting numbers to get. We always sort of knew there was a lot of different animals and critters and things that were using some of our projects, but to have a real number of it's well over 3,000 is, is kind of an interesting number. And, and to see kind of the breadth of not just who's using it from a sort of an animal, but also the people um, that are using it for all kinds of different uses. That's marvelous. Like so much bet better, like data collection, but also drawing people to nature and having their attention and engage them with conservation activities. Andrew, exactly. thank you very much for coming to Geographical Thinking. You're very welcome. Andrew Pratt, Director of IT and longtime GIS professional at Docs Unlimited Canada. Andrew shared a wide range of GIS applications in his organization, from nature conservation to fundraising, from educational programs to policy influencing. If you want to explore their GIS mapping and applications, we include the link on our podcast webpage below. Thanks for joining me on Geographical Thinking. I'm Guan Yu. This podcast is brought to you by Esri Canada, a technology company that empowers people and organizations by the science of where. Thank you.